Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Barbara Link, an Oscar-winning production designer whose credits include Batman and Robin, and last year's exceptional Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for which she recently won her first Academy Award. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics. From her experience working on the controversial 1997 film Batman and Robin, her creative process with director Quentin Tarantino, developing the look of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, managing her budget and resources to transform Hollywood Boulevard back to its original 1969 state, and much, much more. Barbara was extremely generous and willing to record this episode in a Hollywood hotel even without a private space booked and ready to go. So I apologize if you hear the open lounge space be somewhat noisy in the first portion of our conversation. But I promise you will enjoy listening to us quickly break down her work on Batman before we dive straight into our hour-long, spoiler-filled, smile-inducing conversation about everything it took for Barbara and her team to bring the world of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to the big screen. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes from Soundstage Access wherever you get your podcasts. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So, I mean, the last question I had for you in regards to to the Batman film Mm -hmm. is understanding the design influence it had on the architecture, because that to me is the most interesting. Quote, for Batman and Robin, I wanted to add even more architectural extremes than what we did in Batman Forever. We wanted to create a metal world inspired by neon-ridden Tokyo and the way they use metal in the machine age. Gotham is like a world's fair on ecstasy, close quote. That is my, you know, was always my, in both of the Batmans. You know, when you first saw the 39 World's Fair, what that must have been, I mean, I so wish I could go back in time because it must have been a wonderment of scale and proportion because it's a magnificent World's Fair. If you've never seen images from it, for me, Gotham always had a scale, especially in the very early years of the comic. Everything was always soaring up. But then adding, because what I loved in um, Japanese architecture was the new wave of Japanese architects. You know, the idea for us was that metal is you know very expensive. For Japan and for that side of the world, metal was their wood. Wood is gone. So, of course, wood they could never use. So when you, I went to Tokyo for the first time, after having, you have a huge library of Japanese architects who I adore, and then got to be in Tokyo and just agah at these magnificent facades of how metal becomes an entirely different type of decorative. And for me, it was like that World's Fair sensibility. So I was trying to find a way to mesh those worlds. And with that same fabulous sensibility, which is also very Gotham, of the machine age, which I think was beautifully articulated with Anton in the first Batman, that sense of machine age, but try to bring the machine age a little bit more forward for these two. So for Batman Forever, that was kind of the scope, the different looks of how that city formed. And then when it came to the next one, because you had a broader world, a much larger palette because of so many characters, and Mr. Freeze on how things would look, frozen, parts of the city, things like that, is that that's where really I pushed much further to get that kind of metal machine age sense of wonderment, World's Fair. But yes, because we weren't really uh, able to do it on streets, which, you know, on large format, we're doing everything again on backlot. And even though I could extend the backlots, it still was not enough to get that scope. You know, you, you wanted to see that vehicles racing down. You know, that was now, the other thing was to push much more into CGI and miniature. And the miniatures to me are spectacular. And that's when we were still really doing miniatures. And that's a fantastic new deal was doing the miniatures. And when I say miniatures, you know, you were in 24 scale you were, the buildings were close to 40 feet tall. You know, you'd walk down the middle of a, an avenue of miniatures and they were, you know, the scale of that world. 
And I think it helped that they let us do a lot of miniatures. You know, to me, working a lot, and we I kept this, we did CGI. It was the first real sense of CGI being forced into an art department, and I made them do it. I said, I'm not working with two different art departments. You know, I want to have CGI. I want to direct where this goes, and then you guys make it happen. Because before CGI was working in two planes. CGI guys were working at somewhere across town, and then they'd come back and say, here's a cool city. And I go, oh yeah, but that's not the city I wanted. So that was actually quite great to, to be in my art department. We could kind of help form it. But it became, that became the bigger thing in that. You know, that's now the, it was such a new world that you look at now CGI with miniatures became half the movie. Which, you know, to me, I like, if you can, build it from scratch. You know, build it as much real as you can. And I think that's why in this film, people uh, love it so much. And that's important, I think. There's a, a great thing with both of them. But when I think a film gets too stilted, to CGI, and they're, they're not even doing miniatures much anymore. So it becomes stilted to CGI, period. You know, it's just not as exciting. It's not, you know, you, there's something that separates you away from being able to touch it. And I think that's, it's important to um, be careful on how much we don't build. Allow me to segue right now talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and just the idea of not only receiving the script, but understanding the spirit of the movie. About the film, you had this to say, quote, Once Upon a Time is a movie about driving in L.A., in a time where you could actually drive yes. and go from Santa Monica to Westwood to Hollywood in one night. We created more and more traffic jams as the narrative went on, but the film was about Quentin wanting to show the larger landscape back then. Every Friday night during our prep, Quentin would take over the New Beverly Cinema and we would screen 60s LA movies. So the movie shoots from May to October of 2018, and I'm wondering how many weeks of pre-production did your team have and how are you trying to structure your resources and your time in regards to what are the sets we're going to have to build the earliest? For a film of this scale, we had actually a, an extremely short prep time. When I say prep time, prep to when I start a film, if they say, okay, you know, here's the, you read the script and then you break it down and then you start to count up the sets, you go, oh, there's 175 sets. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of sets. That's a lot of sets. So, okay. Then, you know, you start to work with the first AD and uh, once you've worked with Quentin in terms of what we're looking for, and you start to work on this scheduling, which is first AD, who's been working with Quentin. Because everything now, as you start to look at your weeks, you think for the first tech scout, you have to know everything. The tech scout means that the grip, electric, everybody gets into buses, you drive to a space. And even though the set may not be there, you have to say, this is going to be this, here's the imagery, here's the drawings, here's the, and this is going to be over here, and there's going to be this there. You have to have a budget, you have to have everything prior to that. So it meant that in this very quick time of what I call 10 weeks, maybe 11, you have to find all the locations, figure out what you're going to do, present to Quentin, do a lot in Photoshop drawings, because in a lot of things that you were going to resurface, to me, it's so much easier to take photographs of what that is, what you want to put it back to, and do a, almost a photorealism. Anyway, so you're working on that at the same time. At the same time, you're researching. So you have a the day that you start, you start a researcher to find every piece of color footage you could get, which is not so easy in the 60s. Magazines, newspapers, they never shot in color. Newspapers didn't even go to color photographs till probably the 80s. So you'd have a lot of great photographs. Everything was black and white. And you're trying to figure out what's the color of that, you know. So he was amazing, this guy, Lance Melbon, fantastic researcher. And he dug deep. He went into um, every archive you could get into. And then he started finding out and meeting individual photographers and video documentary guys saying, and you have anything? Yeah, you know, I shot uh, Hollywood Boulevard. So we were lucky enough to get an enormous amount of private stuff where people were shooting in color. But all of that's going on. You then have to, you start to present to a producer what your budget is. They, of course, have a heart attack and come back and say, no, I'm not feeling really angry. 
And you go, well, that's all too, and then you have to like battle through what's going to be. Because in this case, that was the most important thing to Quentin was, you know, I want to feel real. I want to be on that street walking in what it was 1969. And that's not CGI. There's no green screen. There's no, you got to put it back. What I always say, most important thing in this town is when you're making money, you buy a house in town. You don't rent. Hollywood real estate means you live here. You, you're not just visiting, not just passing through. You fucking live here. <laughs> here I am, flat on my ass. And who, who, who do I got living next door to me? The director of Rosemary's fucking baby, that's who. It's my next door fucking neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I mean, who knows what could happen? I, 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 could, I could be one pool party away from starring a new Polanski movie. You gonna need me for anything else? Nah, nah, nah. Lines to learn for tomorrow. All right, 7.15 a.m. 7.15. Out the door. Out the door. In the car. All right, see you then. Once we had the time frame of when the first tech scout is to the first shoot day, it got driven then by scheduling, and that's the mastery of the first AD, Bill Clark. And Bill sits and works out puzzles nonstop on a wall and says, well, what about if we did this on this, and we got this one, you know? And a lot of that's driven by locations, too. You know, yes, you want Hollywood Boulevard. That meant going to the uh, Chamber of Commerce, all the boards of, you know, Los Angeles, the city council locations was driving fast and deep. And then they finally needed Quentin to come in and present in front of them and say, please let me have this. And when they did say yes, they said, you can only do it in two sections. If we closed down more than four blocks at a time, we would be in a traffic jam. Then it became what dates, you know, because of course Hollywood Boulevard had, you know, openings or events or, and it comes to me saying, I can't do this in time. This is too big of a build. You've got to push that another two weeks or another three weeks down the road. So it's a mastery of a lot of departments sitting in meetings. Bill with his dream, you know, schedule, schedule and me going, oh, God, you cannot have that first. That is so big. There's no way I can get that built in time, you know, and locations going, well, I can't get that, you know, so you work those things out. That's the mastery of getting a good person in every position to try to work out how you get it built. And then you, yes, go by the schedule. And even that gets screwy after a while because sometimes something happens. And actors all of a sudden, oh my God, the actor can't come for a month. What? You know, we've already built the set. You know, so those are the things you know that become the chessboard of making a film on this level. And we shot from uh, May to actually the second week of November, and we pre-built a few things uh, from stage sets, Rick Dalton's uh, house because those things you could hold on to and they're good to have because they're in case we had a devastating Armageddon rain, which you know, doesn't really ever happen here, you could actually run in and do some scenes so that you have what you have cover sets. So we didn't have many because it was such an exterior film, but we had a few little cover sets. But some things are etched in stone. You know, Once we found the location for Spawn Ranch, which was just a dirt park, I said, well, this is from scratch, building an entire world. So here's your longest set, and it's going to take me this much time. So that kind of stayed. And Quentin also knows what he wants. That's the other key part of this, is that the director also, what he emotionally wants to do. You know, what scenes do you want to do too forward? No, it's too early in the movie. Or what scenes, you know, do you want to make sure at the very end so that he had time to feel that the characterization had fulfilled itself with everybody? Or does he have to write a few more pieces to make that work? So for the scale of this, it was tight. But, you know, that's just the way it worked out. It's, it's the, always the problem with actors, you know, especially Quentin that had such an amazing cast. To get them to work in a certain time frame, everything came forward. When I started, they had originally thought of shooting somewhere in August, September. And once they started locking, it was, you know, you know, it was a great team. We kept a very tight department and it was just trying to get everybody on the right path and being able to have enough you know, L.A. is a tough city because of driving. 
as you well know. If you have a spawn ranch that's 45 minutes to an hour, normally it means whenever anybody goes out there, it's going to be three hours because the traffic is bad driving to Simi Valley. So you try to really cut into this. All right, we're not going to even try to bring the director out to look at something. Let's do it. Would you mind on Saturday morning, you know, to try to keep crew from sucking up a day in driving? That's the only little snafu with our town. And that's why we didn't make very many moves ever in the same day, because you just can't. You, By the time the trucks repack and make a move, you know, there's no more life. So anything that we did on location, we kept it as these two days we shoot here. Then we moved to these two days we shoot here. So, And you group it together. Yeah. yeah. It's my understanding that Hollywood Boulevard was perhaps because of the scale and logistics, the most complex set to bring together about it. You had this to say, quote, we created our version of Hollywood Boulevard through meticulous research. As you said, we addressed buildings to what was there in 1969. We worked outwards from our landmark buildings like Musso and Frank to design each shop facade and figuring out how they would attach to the modern buildings. We pre-built as much as we could off site, then came in with construction crews, followed by painters, and last was the set dressing, close quote. So how were you trying to use neon and color and marquees to provide enough visual variety? Cause we're talking about two blocks and how did your July block differ from your October block? Cause you shot in two different parts and two different times. Yes, we shot on uh, the two blocks, both sides of Musso's. And then we shot all the way down at the Pantages, two blocks up than across the street. You know, the thing with Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset, to tell you the truth, all cities and boulevards, is that neon, that was the form of light. Signs, marquees, everything. You know, neon created that illumination, which I still, for me, is the most beautiful illumination on earth. And I hate that we've had to change it all to what it is. And, you know, a backlit plastic signs and all that. So that was... A, extremely important because Hollywood Boulevard, when you see photographs, especially in the evening or late in the day when you can really see neon, you realize that everything was neon. Every sign was beautifully made. Even if it was an uh, undercoated backlit sign, it was backlit neon. So that was a, a key. And the biggest difficulty is that Hollywood Boulevard, which actually surprised me, even though I'm born and raised in LA, is mobbed every single day with tourists. Just every day, Monday through Sunday, it's nonstop tourism, which is why there are so many shops on Hollywood Boulevard, hundreds of t-shirt shops and trinkets and, you know, and they have cut into the buildings. You know, if you look at a building that was once Dearden's clothing store that used to have one big facade, it's now like seven stores. So the key was how do we get the, the movie theaters was the first course because Quentin, for him as a child, L.A., by looking at marquees and driving, and he created his filmmaker life by being within that. So he chose the sensibility of what marquees to bring back that, that we could achieve. Needless to say, the bigger problem is that the Chinese you wanted so much, but you're never going to get it back because they've just torn it apart. It's a tower now with a facade with a couple of pagodas on this, you know, it's too bad. They took those beautiful vombs that were giant walkways with the pagodas on top. So that one we knew we had to give up and we knew we had to give up that side of Highland because it's just too modernized. There's no, and those were, you know, the Vogue and Pantages, all those theaters were, were huge in their day. They may look small now, but they still were big, you know, theaters of their time. And Putting those back, you know, everything now, they don't use regular marquees anymore. There's no backlit with slide letters, except Quentin, of course, put his theater back to the original. So the New Beverly is and a couple of others in the city. But other than that, it's all LED flashboards. So they can just, you know, a guy on a computer changes them to whatever the movie is. And the, now it's imagery and there's no more. So we had to first figure out how do we get those off? And then how do we get ours back on? How do we restore the original neon? And that took really a month of engineering. We had to make sure if we were putting a marquee back on, like the Pussycat had pretty much nothing. So it was putting literally this huge, very heavy facade back on 
with the giant neon letters. And we brought in engineers to make sure that we didn't rip down the building because these are old buildings and a lot of them not in such great repair. And the city's one big thing is you can never close the stores because the stores, we don't close, will only close for the three days of shooting. So you couldn't close the store, you couldn't stop traffic, and you couldn't while stop you're building. while you're building. So it was like, okay, so we'll bring a crane in by night and park it in front of the building. <laughs> and then a manufacturing of this, okay, it has to be done in sections. So as each piece goes up, you know, there's people down below. And I mean, you know, I felt for the location department, they were just magnificent in this, but they had to have so many people. Because in this day and age, you know, with selfies, what people do when they walk down Hollywood Boulevard is they take a phone and they're shooting the stars as they're walking, looking at nothing. So they would like, you know, walk right into the tire of the crane. We had to have so many people to stop people from killing themselves and on ladders. And But it was uh, it was difficult and very careful and laborious. And whenever we'd put a facade, we'd leave the opening of the store. And then we had one tiny frame of time where they gave us the weekend and the night, two nights before we shot. And that's when we put the rest of the facade, the doors on, and the decorating department, Nancy Haig, one of the magnificent decorators of all time. She had already, come, we rehearsed it in a way. They rehearsed by just staring at it and figuring out, okay, we're going to put these shelves in, this is going to happen. And they did uh, like an army her team. They'd put the door on the facade. Okay, this one's done. Her team would come, go in, put the books inside, you know, whatever the thing was. And then next. And then the last thing was actually getting, we had put all of the electrical onto the building tops. And then it was the electricians coming in, which was by night, to do all the hookups of all the neon and the testing and the, no, it was really hard. You mentioned the Chinese, and I'm still glad, by the way, that you got to have the parking lot. Well, that's what Quentin and I, I said, you know what, the coolest thing, remember the parking lot? He goes, I knew you right, the parking lot. I mean, the parking lot was almost as good as the Chinese. That gigantic, you know, they changed the biggest almost billboard poster of what the movie was. And then that cool little pagoda parking sign thing. I said, we could do that. At least it's, you know, we get a piece of it in there. I always loved that parking lot, so. I think it's fantastic. I mean, it made me smile. I'm glad you transitioned into it for a second because I think the movie theaters for Quentin's legacy, both for himself and his movies, you know, I'm thinking of Shoshana's Theater and Glorious Bastards and, and the New Beverly, which I went to this morning, by the way, you know, and in here you got the Regency in Westwood, the Pentagius, the, the Cinerama Dome. Yes. And, and we got the Van Eyes. I said, we got to have a drive-in. And we both went, Van Eyes because I love, always loved that mural when I was a kid, that horseback. So yeah, we got that in too. So we, I think it's a concept of the movie palace more than just a movie theater. Oh, movie, I think so. Which is missed. And even though I've worked many times at the Egyptian, it's an appreciation that I think oh, yeah. when it's brought back fully, like you guys did, it reminds us that there was really an experience attached to it. And it, that's what it was. And that's what was so important to Quentin is that that when you went to a movie from the first time, even as a child, you were just, you know, you were in awe, you know, the sparkly lights, the movie, you know, the first thing was that marquee come taking you in and it's that breathtakingness. I mean, that's the thing that is uh, a worry of it going away is that it's not an experience. You know, that for him is the heart of telling. And it's really the heart of what Los Angeles was. It was Hollywood. We were built to be a movie making city. I mean, that's what it was. One, please. 75 cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. You're in this? Mm-hmm. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. That's me. <laughs> really? Really. Well, welcome to the Bruin, Miss Tate. Thank you for coming to our theater. Would you like to come in and see the show? Could I? By all means. I just thought I would transition and ask you about Rick Dalton's life on, on sets. About a year, this to say, quote, there are two world of Westerns for Rick Dalton, the Western town from Bounty Law 
as I just said, was geared to emulate more of a 50s black and white show era. With Lancer, color is introduced to present a wealthier look to the Western of the you know late 60s and 70s, like Gunsmoke, for example, that Quentin loves. So I was wondering, how did you go about selecting these two lots and what was Melody Ranch offering you that Universal wasn't and vice versa? Well, Melody Ranch, you know, when you think of a bounty lot for me, because I'm old enough to remember these, is that the Rifleman, the, you know, these great kind of late 50s, early 60s Westerns were all in black and white. I mean, there was no, they weren't doing color when you're shooting in black and white at that time, the tonality of how the texture of buildings were and so forth. And Melody Ranch, which is an old, old style, great wood, kind of a smaller town, a story and a half buildings. It's not big, prominent. It was never a wealthy looking Western town. It was a rough and tumble, which is very much what Bounty Law was. You know, that in Quentin's head, Bounty Laws of that one main street, maybe there's a side street, you know, type of thing. So Melody Ranch worked beautifully and the texture of that, you know, we changed a bunch of the facades and I put balconies where Quentin wanted to do some stunt fall-throughs and we changed the signs. Whereas Lancer is um, that TV series, Lancer. It was kind of like Bonanza, you know, Bonanza, these were like wealthy people who lived outside of town and they came into the town and the town reflects even in Bonanza and even in Gunsmoke when it went to color, but Lancer was a whole different egg than all of those. It was a, a color show and they were kind of the San Joaquin Valley. So you had that mix of Spanish uh, Monterey, California adobe. And what you saw was kind of a Hispanic city that had been taken over by the cattle ranchers and they built a big Western town into it. So you still had a little of the adobe and Monterey buildings and you see the prominence of these big, beautiful two-story, sometimes three-story. The hotels would be big, beautiful balconies on the top and on the bottom. And at Universal, it didn't have the scope we wanted, but it had the scale we wanted. And Universal had pretty much through the years turned itself into a brick and stone town. Probably for the tour more than anything. I don't know how much was shot there in the last couple decades. It was no longer had wood, you know, didn't really have that. But I said, let's see if they'll let us change it. And Universal said, yes. I said, if I want to refacade and make, put the buildings back to what if I want to add adobes in and Monterey architecture? And they said, go for it. So we got to rebuild the Western lot there because it, it had more of a later century to it, almost like a Baltimore Western town is what it looked like before. And we made it into kind of a grand, you know, the saloon being the, the major piece, this kind of big, lusty looking saloon with big balconies on top. And on the inside, you still have a little of the Spanish flair. And Quentin particularly loved Lancer and wanted that to be the, um, and what Lancer was about and the whole thing with the actors of the time who were in it. So, but that's why we picked it. You know, we had looked at um, even going to Santa Fe, but, you know, the time frame of the movie to split us into two areas would have been a nightmare. Hello, everybody. This is Alan Kincaid on the set of the exciting hit NBC and Screen Gems television series, Bounty Law. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick stunt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Well... Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Say Jake Cahill gets uh, shot off his horse. Now, can I fall off a horse? Yes, I can. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> but say I fall off wrong and I, and I sprain my wrist or I, or I twist my ankle. Now, that can put an undue burden on production because now maybe I can't work for a week. So Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. You know, we, we were talking about the Hollywood era and it made me smile as I was lucky enough to recognize, you know, you shoot a piece of it, Norwalk, you shoot the Bruce Lee section. And then I recognized the Paramount exterior for when Cliff picks up 
you know, and it's great to see that you're not afraid of going out of your way to, as opposed to maximizing everything in one lot, thinking the audience is not going to appreciate it. You're going specifically for what each studio emotionally oh, is offering you. Get. And that was, you know, it was ironic that we had to build our own studio lot. But the hard part of that sequence with Bruce Lee was when we went to Paramount, we went to Warner's, we went to, and they were all like, well, there is no area that's not being used, you know, five days a week, if not six. You could maybe have one day. Well, you know, one day wasn't enough to make put something back. Ironically, our studios were too crowded to really be able to spend the time to create a period studio and to have the time to shoot it. And that scene was too important to Quentin. He says, I may need three, four days for this. I, you know, I don't, I can't say, oh, you know, you got to be off today. So that's why. And it just happened to be location. said, well, you know, this school. I said, well, let's go down. So I went down with location again. I went, this could be Warner Brothers. If I start putting numbers and repaint that and put a big thing, you know, you realize that, you know, that sense of industrial building, which is probably very um, 40s, late 30s, early 40s, they built some of these big old schools with. It's kind of exactly how Warner's was built. All the back lot area was like a big industrial. It has the big frames. And it's only the front of the buildings that tell you, wow, movie studio, Paramount. Or, but when you're on the inside, if you can find a sense of architecture that's the same era, and this school in Norwalk was oddly could double as, you know, parts of at least Warner Brothers for sure, definitely Paramount. Because it's the same era that it was being built and it was industrial. Well, let me ask you that then, this idea of recreating the active movie set, because it's not just the architecture, it's the set dressing, you know, alone. Oh, absolutely. From, there's this idea of trying to paint in the audience's mind of what a movie set looks like by the end of it, having recreated all these active movie sets. What did it teach you about what do you think the best way to go about reconstructing Hollywood in motion would be? Well, you know, with movie sets, we, we had fabulous research because luckily that's been shot a lot through history. The sense of um, storage, the studios in the early days of being built and in the 40s and 50s, you know, as TV became big, they had a ton of TV shows all of a sudden. It wasn't just movies. And, you know, what you realize when you look at uh, research in backlots, crap everywhere. They hadn't built storage units yet. They had like, well, what are we going to do with all these statues? They, everything was lined up. All of the grip and electric equipment just off to the side. Lights up and down avenues. So, you know, we kept very close in research to that. If you were coming out of the sound stage of that show that they were working on, all the junk would be right out front of it. Prop guy would run a run out and grab those statues, take it in and do the shot, you know, that type of thing. So, you know, that was uh, fun in researching how much stuff is on the back lots. Now you can't have any of that. You know, there's all of a sudden a fire guy goes, hey, what's this cart doing out here? You can't, don't block the lane. But none of those laws existed back then. <laughs> they blocked everything. It was, it was fun to do. Allow me to step into the final portion of our conversation to ask you about set dressing. And again, your relationship with Nancy Hay, your set decorator, and Richard Johnson, your art director. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take an example and analyze a set where you're not truly building a lot. And the way that the three of you try to understand how to work off the strengths of an existing location. So for example, let me grab the freeway. Quote, we change out the freeway, put up the lights and change the signs to look like 1969. The crosswalks, the traffic lights, those things had to be changed and changed back fast because we didn't want people to get confused. Close quote. Yeah. Well, that was the city saying, you could change that, but you got to get that back. The minute you wrap, you've got to have that you know, light back. You know, that's the thing that people don't think about is that you, you, one thing is to do a set. The next thing is to stand in Westwood and be in the, the four corners there where the, the Bruin and the Fox are and realize... When, when Sharon Tate goes to the movies, just to create right, some context. Sharon, exactly. You don't realize that not long ago, and I mean maybe seven years, six years ago, these crosswalks changed around the world really driven by Japan, which was the first to use what they call zebra crosswalks, which are big, fat, white stripes, and you do a ton of them each way so that nobody can miss that's where people walk. You know, we always had two stripes, and then it was blank in the middle, 
and you walked in between the two stripes and that's your crosswalk. Well, they're all gone, the two stripes, and there's zebra stripes everywhere. And um, the city has a hard time, does not want you to get all those out. And then you have to, all of the street lights have changed. So that has to be changed out. The crosswalks, which are now digital, all the trash cans, all the parking meters, there's a, a, a thousands of bike racks that are built into the sidewalks now. And they don't want you to cut them. And you don't want to take them out of here. So we'd have to work with them on putting things over them. Or if there was one in bad repair, let us take it out. So that's just street dressing. That is enormous amount of work. I mean, it's scenics, it's construction. Before you even do the facades of the building, is you've got... But I think emotionally is what immediately immerses audiences into a period. I'll give an example. We got to shoot a new Universal backlot and we stepped into main New York Street and we realized there's nothing here. Right. There's a reason they wait for productions to bring in the dressing because it's exactly. the first thing that informs a time period. Of what the emotion. time period is. Right. No, because you know the only way you talked to anybody was uh, phone booths. It's even hard to get phone booths anymore because they're so archaic. But which is so weird to me. I realized, wow, there's no more phone booths anywhere. But you know, you had to put phone booths back in. You had to put all of that sense of. And the other thing was is in advertising. You know, you don't realize how much in L.A. All of our TV shows they would do weekly advertising on like bus benches. So it'd be, you know, Jerry Dumphy on tonight, watch the news, blah, blah, blah. Or it would be, you know, the Aliens TV show, or it would be whatever the shows were, they would tell you who was guest starring in ads on bus benches and on buses and on little billboards that were all over, you know, Jeepers Creepers, Midnight Tonight. It was a world of, besides products, is that in LA, we, we publicize TV and movies with billboards, but all the time. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, once a month billboard. It was, you know, every single week they changed those bus benches, which is an amazing amount of advertising. So we did that, you know. Quentin came up with his favorite shows and we would add some in and, you know, it'd be Honey West and, you know, these kind of great shows of the 60s that they did, you know, ads for everywhere. But that that is a layer that's so important because it's very much what LA is. I mean, that's what LA was about. At that time, it was particularly since, you know, from 50s, 60s was the explosion of TV. But that segues perfectly into the fact that it's my understanding that Quentin has an amazing attention to detail. You know, Brandy's dog food is one of the many props that was designed from scratch. And allow me, because I want to ask you about this a little bit. Quote, Quentin is an enormous collector. He'd visit the dress sets a few days before shooting and feel inspired to bring props of his own. A saddle, mugs for, you know, Rick Dalton's personal bar. Poster-wise, that's very much Quentin's world. And all of those started with him showing me his own collection of incredible Italian posters he had been archiving, close quote. So I was curious to ask you, this is obviously a very personal movie for Quentin. And, and in what ways do you think pieces of his own life found their way into your production design? Oh, it's all through it. I would show him something. He goes, oh, oh my God, where do you see what I, I've got this really neat thing, you know? He's a director who I've never seen a director. be is so, so many things from, of course, the standard of acting and writing and, and even music, but he, he takes music so beyond anything. I mean, from the day I started scouting with him, he ran in, he had already had the entire year of our movie, KHJ, the DJ tapes, and he had them all on DVDs. And he would just put them in and we'd listen just as we drove. It's a day in the life of LA in that exact time period that we were in with all the music and then what was coming in and the ads and all of a sudden you'd hear, you know, Los Angeles weather. Low overcast tonight, low around 58, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 68. No smog beaches now, 62, Valley 66, downtown 65, Orange County. It was so, you know, important to him to always be thinking and feeling this way. And, you know, who knows what, you know, he got those KHJ. I said, when did you get these? He said, oh, you know, a long time ago, I wanted to get DJ tapes. So he got day in the life of great DJ tapes. Of, and that's kind of the running background in our movie, if you can hear. Because that's what you did in L.A. Where you got in your car, you turned your favorite station on, you never turned that station off. 
And that was the DJ you listened to when you came home. You know, you turned on your radio in your room and that was the music playing in the background. That was the DJ. Quentin talked about the fact that back then his memory as a child was that as opposed to, you know, if we wanted to talk, we're in the car, as opposed to lowering the volume, you would just talk over it. Oh, no, you would. No, because it, be it became a constant. I mean, your parents would always walk in your room and go, can you turn the radio up? Why? Because I can't hear myself even talking to you. You know, it just became part of the world and you learned about news and they're cool DJs. So, you know, when you're young, it's like hearing like a friend talk. And then all of a sudden you just hear cool music. And then as you say one thing, Quentin goes, oh, I know, but remember, and he will remember, his mind is a computer. He has absorbed from the last 40 years, uh, every movie, every TV show. He is just one of those brains that is so keyed into the world with which he lives and, and writes in. He's like an encyclopedia. It's a, a scary encyclopedia. Because if he knows a movie, he doesn't just know the actors and the writer and the director. He knows all the stuntmen. He knows the backstory to how the stunt guy got the job to be the, you know, but he's known this. He says, I don't know why I read something and it never leaves my brain. So, so when it came to things like the layering of an apartment like Rick's, it's so personal to him, this movie, that he would say, I like that chair, but you know, I've got this chair and I use it in something else, but can we try this chair? And he's got a storage place that's massive and they'd find that chair and pull it out. He had a chair that actually wasn't for Rick, that was for the trailer for Brad Pitt's character. And um, it just, you know, we tried this, we tried that. And he goes, oh, I've got this chair, I've got it. And this ratty, fabulous thing that I can't even believe he saved from another movie that was in his storage because he just knew someday, it, and that became Cliff's chair. His brain takes him to places, and it also makes him keep things. He just thinks, that'd be neat for something someday. I mean, I guess if you can afford thousands of square feet of um, storage spaces. But it, what's amazing is that he can remember it. You know, it was from something way back, an early film of his. He goes, no, there was a cool chair. It was kind of yellowish, and I think I have it, you know. And he'd bring it. But he always had stuff. It, it's very personal to him. And he likes, as you well know, interweaving pieces like the cigarettes, different things that, have, that work a vein through his other movies. And you just update them to that movie. So if you notice in all those movies, those little um, cigarettes change the package, but it's the same little face and the same little, yeah. And the same with the beer and the, you know, there's many things that just delight him to bring back and then you just redesign it to work in that time, 1969, rather than in Germany or wherever else it was. But but that, I've never seen someone so delighted by minutiae, just a thing. We did a record store in this, and I knew when Nancy Hay got it that he'd freak out, that it was an album that just I knew and his eyes go right to it. Oh my God, I love this album, you know. He has a real unique vision to, to what it means something to him and what attracts something to him. And he has a very specific vision of, oh, I really hate that. I'm like, what? The hat? I said, macrame? <laughs> I hated it. I hated it as a child. I said, well, I have to say, I was never a big fan either, but it was a popular 1969 look, but we got rid of it. But it's funny what he didn't like, you know what I mean? All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. What are you talking about? What did that guy tell you? Told me the goddamn truth is what he told me. Whoa, whoa. Hey. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Here, put these on. Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Now, what's got you so upset, man? Well, coming face to face with the failures that is your career ain't worth crying about, then I don't know what the fuck is. Right, that guy in there turned you down? Well, once they helped me get into Italian movies. Well, then what's the problem? I gotta do fucking Italian goddamn movies. That's a fucking problem. Come on. Fucking bullshit. Yeah. My final question to you as we wrap up this conversation. Quote, every new project is a completely new set of rules and design. Your head never stops, and the excitement of how each script responds to something else 
influences my choices. So what did your experience on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood teach you about yourself as a production designer? And how did the movie differ from the way you thought you were gonna design it to the way it actually became? You know, I had in my head an expectation only from reading about kind of what Quentin was writing about and it was gonna be the Mansons or something. So I thought, oh, you know, when they called and said, Quentin, I would like to, you to read the script. And to read the script meant you had to go, they had one script only that everybody, every actor read every, you know, and it, you, you went to Quentin's house and there's an office off to the side of his house and you're led there and you're sitting in this little office room and take as long as you want, you know, his, his um, assistant would say, bring this script that had just, you know, fingerprints and coffee and smudge, you know, it's been read by every actor that, and uh, as I started reading it, uh, I may have gotten to page five when I went, my God, what is this film? It was the most extraordinary thing I had ever read. He wrote it like a novel, so it reads like a novel. As you're going along, it's talking, and this character's talking, and then he takes you out of it for a second to go, you know, he had this wife, and he was on this boat, and we don't know what, you know. And then he goes back to the story. So you write this vast novel with these characters coming through and then pops of the absolute essence of what L.A. is about and travels and places. And But you feel this undertone. You're always like, where is this going to go? What's going to happen with, you know, because you, by now I'm, I know this is not the movie I was thinking was going to be. It wasn't a movie I, I didn't even know what I was thinking, but this was something so unique and extraordinary. The first time I think I've ever laughed out loud to myself when I'm reading something. I mean, I'm just laughing. I, it was like, his, some of the, his dialogue is so funny. And then as you get closer, then all of a sudden this end, and you just, it's like I blew my brain right out of my head. And I closed it, and then I opened it again. And I thought, wow, this is, this is like so unbelievable. And I have to do this movie I just, because of the, it, just the extraordinariness. The screenplay itself is a masterpiece and it should be published. Which is what I was telling Will Clark because all of Quentin's stuff is usually out. And I was like, Bill, why do you think that this is the first movie where they don't release a screenplay with the movie? And he said, perhaps, which is what you mentioned, perhaps Quentin's waiting for the extended version. We don't want to spoil any and that material. Be. You know, that, that could, could be, be it. And I also think that what's smart, and I actually find it unbelievable, you know, when it was opening, when Quentin was going to con, and I said to Quentin when we were doing the film, I said, how are you ever going to let, how is it ever we going to make sure that people don't tell people the end? Because you want to be fresh when you, he said, I'm just going to tell them. I'm just going to somehow figure it out. And of course he did it. He announced when he went to con, he, I love that he got up first and said, I'm so grateful that you're all here. Please don't write in your reviews. Don't write about the end. Let, let the rest of the world, when this opens in two months, because he wasn't even opening in two more months. You know, in May was con, and then he was, you know, July was. And, you know, what's amazing is they listened to him. I don't think one reviewer ever revealed the end. I mean, that to me is a phenomenon. In this day and age, that, you know, nobody Twittered it out the moment they walked out of the screening. So you have all these people freshly seeing something. Uh, and I think it was very smart of him to keep his, and he would say it again when it was opening in uh, its screenings that he, that he had for press screenings in, in America. He'd say, please, please, please don't. It's part of the experience to let people experience on their own. And I really am surprised that nobody ever revealed on a large scale, you know, headlines in social media to kind of wreck it. But I think that he absolutely has to publish this because I think it's an incredible, it's an incredible piece of writing. Just every weave. And I think in doing it, the thing that I learned the most, the difference of how, and that's from Quentin really, is how he sees is a different way of seeing things. You know, his great line to me, which I've used many times because he was frustrated trying to explain, you know, I want to do this sign montage, but I don't want to do it, you know, in real life. And I, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. And I, he said, you know, just imagine really this movie, you know, when you're driving down is everything is, you know, it's a, an eight-year-old laying in the back of his mom's car 
and his, his point of view all the time of LA, of driving, of things, is that he's looking out the window from a laying down point of view, which is a very interesting thing. And because you realize if you're in the back of the car and you're looking out, you're only seeing a, an angle and you're, always, you're never seeing much of the building here. You're always seeing it from that point of view. And we did do a huge sign montage. And I said, well, we could maybe do this if we did all the telephone poles and all the stuff. We rebuilt signs from, because he wanted Panorama City, which was also the exciting thing of Quentin, is that he never picked the norm. You know, it wasn't like the norm. It was, you know, Panorama City, is that still, no, it's not there anymore. But, you know, there's, there's malls there, but it's not with Panorama City, which was a series of Roy Rogers restaurants and so-and-so hotel and, you know, all these. But we did the sequence by building it out in Santa Clarita in this giant parking lot off of a, off of a racetrack and then sunk telephone poles and put all the lines back in and had the signs. You know, you had the Earl Shibes and it was, you know, Cliff's driving on his way back to the driving movie theater. So he passes those and it's all from that point of view. It's an eight-year-old, you know, it's like the camera we put in the back underneath the seat and it's looking up and that's exactly the view. And it's and there's many things in that. He would say, remember the, the neon from... Vandy camps. And I said, oh my God, that's fantastic. You know, it's a fantastic imagery because Vandy camps had these big restaurants all over, usually off the freeways. And as you were driving at night, all you saw was the windmill, the blue neon, not even the windmill, going around like this giant blue neon and did it down off one of the freeways. And you drive by. I mean, what I loved and learned on this was that. Quentin, in how he writes, because he writes that into it, it's a poetic vision. You know, it's a the poetry of one beautiful piece of blue neon on a windmill going around is just, that's all he needed. He just wanted that. No, is that going to have any, Cliff's just going to drive off, we're going to drive by, and he'll just linger on it for a second. And it means something. And it does mean something, because I can't tell you how many people call me and go, Oh my God, the Vandy Camps neon, you know, people from LA or people who, because Vandy Camps was only in LA, but, but people who went to college and, you know, remembered it. He struck a note, you know, on something so mundane, but so interesting. That's the biggest thing of learning in Quentin is how um, he uses a, a very slight visual as just a tag ending to a piece of a scene. That's wonderful. And it's special on behalf of everyone. Barbara, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank You've been you. so generous. And uh, thank you for bringing us back to 1969 Hollywood. Yeah. It's, it's it been a pleasure. Hard. Good. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Barbara and Will Clark for taking the time to break down their work on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and to Eric Boss for mixing all of the episodes. Congratulations to Barbara and her team for such a well-deserved production design Oscar. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and leave a review so you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for new conversations. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Soundstage Access.